0: Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 178. In this episode, we're talking about the evangelical imagination with Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Dr. Pryor is an acclaimed writer, literary scholar, and professor. She is the author of Fierce Convictions. The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, published by Thomas Nelson, on Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books by Brazos, and her latest book, The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis, also published by Brazos. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. John Anthony Dunn, Dr. Madison Pierce, Dr. Sydney Tooth and myself, Dr. Amber Bowen. Well, we just had a delightful conversation with Dr. Pryor, who, by the way, is a repeat guest on the Two Cities podcast. What did you guys take away from the conversation?
1: I really appreciate Karen's ability to weave together these different parts of history. She's a literary scholar, and yet you can clearly see her sort of command of the history that goes behind all of those different things. So I love her analogy of the reformation that we talk about quite a bit and um, just think that she has an ability to, I don't know, almost diagnose a, a disease and to unpack it and and all of that. So I I sort of hope that her treatment works as well.
2: Yeah, I think. Karen's approach of looking at popular culture and metaphors and just those things that have shaped evangelicalism I think is going to bring out a lot of stuff that's been overlooked and I think is just such a helpful way to actually look at how evangelicals have got to the point they have now and kind of getting out of the idea of just kind of pure doctrine or or that's the shaping but actually it's so much wider and bigger than that Um, and so I think what we've talked about in this conversation is a really great starting point to think about that. And I'm excited to see uh, what impact Karen's work has.
3: I thought it was really great to think about how evangelicals apply their beliefs with their kind of social imaginary, as she talks about it, that it's not just you know what do evangelicals believe and other issues there, but but um, what are evangelicals doing with their beliefs and is there some kind of lack of coherence there between what they believe and how they how they apply it? And we talked about the role of consumerism and the role of power and these different things that have kind of distorted the evangelical social imaginary. And I just thought it was uh, really helpful to hear her understanding of the the plight uh, and also the uh, solution, which was uh, again and again, uh, calling us to to look to Jesus.
0: And I loved the way that she conducts her analysis of the evangelical imaginary from Uh, a place of love and a place of loyalty as well. She sees herself as an evangelical. She's looking at her own tradition. So this is not an outsider peering in. This is a great example of uh, critical self-reflection with the desire for evangelicalism to be its absolute best and most Christ-like that it can possibly be. And with that, here is our conversation with Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen, we are thrilled to have you on the Two Cities Podcast once again. Thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Thanks for having me again.
0: Well, we'd love to start off by talking a bit about your newest book, which is The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. And there is so much embedded even within the title. Um, So many things that we're excited to talk to you about today, but... I'm wondering if you could share with us a little bit about the inspiration for the book or what was driving you as you were writing and what you hope that the book will achieve.
4: Great question. And I, and maybe I'll just kind of start with unpacking a little bit of the title. Um, I am an evangelical. and uh, And for many of us who are, whether we, you know, claim that uh, title or not. Um, I think we've seen a lot happening over the the past few years um within evangelicalism, especially in American, North American evangelicalism, that seems like a crisis. That's the the subtitle. Um and I, I also um you know I, I teach literature and my area of specialty is 18th to the 19th century British literature, uh, which happens to be where evangelicalism actually originated and rose in influence. Um, and a lot of people don't know that, especially since since even the term evangelical has been in a lot of headlines over the past few years. People just don't necessarily know that it has that long of a history, or they might think associated with, with the middle of the 20th century and Billy Graham, but the history is much longer than that. Um, and so so the more immediate prompt for writing this book is just sort of my identity as an evangelical, watching what's happening. But also over the years, I have taught a lot of um, Victorian literature to my students in an evangelical context. And one of the things that just keeps coming up over and over when we study Victorian literature, the Victorian age is really the, the century that follows the rise of evangelicalism, but bears so much of its influence in a, a exhibit so much of its um, influence is student, we would read things and so many of the values and ideas and concepts and images of the Victorian age were ones that my students who grew up in evangelical subculture could identify with. And it was like their lives, not just the the lives of these Victorian um, figures we were reading about. And so we would just stop and say, hey, is this you know, do you think this ideal that we're seeing is, is it really biblical or is it just Victorian? Um, And so those kinds of conversations, just that that was the genesis of the book. And I just sort of expanded it outward from there.
3: So Mark Knoll wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, basically saying that the scandal is more or less that there isn't much of an evangelical mind. Do you think there's not much of an evangelical imagination then? (laughs)
4: That's a great question. So um, here's the thing about imagination is that we always have one. It's always working. Now, it may be impoverished, it may be deformed, it may not be healthy, um, we may not be aware of it. And, and actually in the book, although the the title has the word imagination in it, the connection I make in first chapter is between what we generally think of as imagination and a bigger, more philosophical concept of the the, um, social imaginary. Uh, So what I'm really focusing on this book is the social imaginary, the one that I identify as being um, sort of a subset that is the evangelical social imaginary. Um, And that draws very heavily from the philosopher Charles Taylor, who, among others, writes about the social imaginary. And he defines it as a sort of precognitive, subconscious level of, um, you know, a collection of, of ideas, images, metaphors, myths, legends, stories, songs, things that are just sort of in our collective imaginations as a culture or society or community. And we may not even know that they're there, but they are driving us, um, driving our desires, our habits, our practices, um, and shaping our imagination, whether we're we're aware of it or not. And so um, I identify just a few of what I see as key Elements of the evangelical social imaginary Um, and the book is really an invitation. I mean, I'm hoping anyone who picks us up and reads it would say, oh, what, there's also this, this and this. I mean, because it's a really an infinite um, pool of of these images uh, and all we can do is really just start to interrogate them um, and not leave them unexamined. And That's what I'm trying to model in the book.
0: Speaking of unexamined, a common approach to looking at evangelical history or any kind of history of cultural or religious movements, usually I found takes the form of looking at sort of the consequences of ideas, examining beliefs, examining concepts and how those beliefs and ideas maybe had some kind of practical implication on, on a particular group. And I find it fascinating that you're not looking at the consequences of ideas or evangelical beliefs. You're looking at the evangelical imaginary, and you're talking about things like metaphors and images, um, which, as you said, for Charles Taylor, really go undetected. And I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit why you chose to do that and and why you think that this is such a powerful window into the evangelical
2: world. Mm
4: Yeah. So, I mean, part of it is just sort of who I am and what my life work represents. I mean, I I study and teach literature and with that other arts and culture. Um, And of course I do write about ideas and I don't think that the line, I don't think anyone would claim that the line between sort of an imaginary and an idea is necessarily clear, but um, especially within my you know, not just my evangelical um, context, but even just sort of the Reformed Protestant community. I mean, we're really all about ideas and doctrine and teaching. And, and, and actually, my own story is one in which, um, for me, my Christian faith didn't really come alive or become exciting and meaningful to me um, until I discovered biblical worldview, which is all about ideas and, and applying like biblical teaching to this issue and that issue. Uh, and, and I was very excited about biblical worldview, integrated it into all of my classes and and um, and thought that was you know, the answer to everything. And after decades of teaching, I would see my students living lives um, that were not at all <laughs> an application of, of what I would consider to be biblical worldview. And I just, I started to wonder like, well, I taught them the right answer. I told them what the right application is. What what am I missing? Uh, and then it was around that time when I started reading reading the work of James K. A. Smith, who, um, you know, his whole um, uh, anthropo- liturgical anthropology talks about drawing drawing from Augustine, talks about how we are not just heads on sticks; that we are desiring creatures before we are thinking creatures. And a light bulb went on for me um, that helped me to see that biblical worldview works for me because I desire, think, and apply and deal with concepts. That's my love. But that's not necessarily the desire that drives everyone else. And so I began to realize that really, you know, it's our desires that drive us. Um, and our desires are very connected to our imaginations because it is our imaginations that kind of carry the images and concepts and uh, and, and stories and metaphors and songs and and um, and cultural artifacts that are just there that don't necessarily translate into like language or a sentence or um, a syllogism and so it just brought together for me all the things that are important to me like, living the Christian life, finding the good life, um, art, literature, imagination. I thought this is just a way to kind of, um, think about my particular community and my people and the crisis that we're facing right now. Thank you so much, Karen. And I love that we can see
1: your own creativity coming through and how you're addressing this uh, perceived problem. I think it's really helpful. I wonder if you could help us to know what some of those images and Themes are that you identified. What what are compelling
4: visions for the evangelical? Mm. Well, you know, I, I think I have um, twelve or eleven or twelve in the book. I'm not good with the numbers, um, but <laughs> that I identify and, and I kind of you know I, I because my um, my academic work goes back to the 18th century, and I actually studied the rise of evangelicalism and, and working on my um, doctoral dissertation. I kind of started there. And so one of the, one of the early metaphors or images that I treat is conversion, um, because uh, you know sort of the standard um, academic definition that is most accepted uh, today it comes from David Bebbington, who says that evangelicalism, in whatever denomination or place that it exists across history. Um, has four characteristics called the Wimkin quadrilateral, and those are the centrality of the Bible, the centrality of um, Christ's crucifixion, uh, and the centrality of an activist spirit, and also the centrality of conversion is the importance of that individual conversion. Uh, now, that's a real thing. I, I do believe that you know, in order to be uh, you know a Christian, you have to have you have to be converted. Um and so I, that's one reason I value evangelicalism is for kind of making that part of a center of uh, of the movement. But it's, so it's a real thing, but it's also a metaphor. It's also like an image. I mean, we, we can look throughout art and literature, and culture and see sort of this idea of conversion and having like a before and after and being something different. And again, it's a real thing. It's it's central a central doctrine, but it's also an imaginative thing. And so, I think one of the examples I use in the book is is um, Charles Dickens, who is writing. You know, he's like the most Victorian of the Victorian novelists. His works are deservedly well beloved. Um, and he wasn't an evangelical, but he was part. He was a you know a Christian of some orthodox and unorthodox beliefs, but essentially a Christian. Um, But he he was writing and living in an evangelical climate and sometimes contesting some of those things or satirizing them. But one of his most beloved stories, um, A Christmas Carol, is essentially a conversion story. And it's delightful and it's lovely. I mean, Ebenezer Scrooge has a conversion at the end. He has a new creature. Um, and so that's an example of kind of an image that's part of the evangelical culture um, that stays with us. And, and there are lots of others, um, you know, more, more minor ones, but just con- the idea of conversion, the images of conversion, our conceptions of conversion, our, how we imagine conversion might or should look like, we're, we're just immersed in that. And it's something I think that we, you know, we can, if we don't think about it, we don't realize maybe how we're being influenced by, false or deformed images of conversion.
0: I'm wondering if you could give us an example of some of the ways that maybe the image of conversion, for example, is deformed um, and and what happens, how are metaphors and images can become deformed and
4: and what happens when they do? Mm. Great question. So um, a few things that I talk about in the book, uh, and actually I, I kind of talk about these in two chapters because closely connected to conversion is the story of our conversion or the conversion narrative or what we call an the testimony. Um, so I'll probably talk about a, a few things from both of those chapters. But um, one thing is that even though we as evangelicals recognize the reality and the necessity of conversion, there are other things that come along with that that may not necessarily be necessary or always true. Uh, for example, having a conscious awareness of a specific moment, date, time, hour of that conversion. Uh, many people do, but if you don't have that because perhaps you were too young, perhaps you are you know, someone with um, a disability, perhaps you are someone upon whom that process has just been long and slow and hard, um, then you might not have that specific memory uh, or moment or conscious awareness. That does not mean that you have not been converted. Um, And so, so seeing the prevalence of something can be mistaken as a necessity for it. Um, And we see that with conversion. And I talk about that, that I, you know, I became a Christian as a very young child. And I don't remember that moment, but I remember moments afterwards where I, you know, I was already certain of my salvation. And I was certain enough to um, take the step of obedience and being baptized um, later as a child. And I remember that well, and I know what it meant to me. Um, another thing that can come out of a distorted idea or image about conversion, or, or the influence even of stories um, that grab hold of our imagination, is the, is the mistaken notion that um, our conversion stories should be dramatic, um, that we should have a very marked difference between the before and after. Um, and if we don't have that, then maybe our conversions are somehow lesser. Or less meaningful, or less exciting, or you know, and if we think that, then there's a temptation for some people um, to embellish their conversion stories. Um, and we've, you know, it, I think some of us have probably witnessed that. Or there's a there's a habit in our practice in the church which I think is not healthy at all uh, to platform. Um, young believers who might have a dramatic story simply because they are a new believer and maybe they're a famous person or a celebrity and we just want to have that stamp of approval from that particular crowd. And so we platform people and give them more authority than perhaps their Christian maturity um, can bear. So again, the distortions of the realities can lead to some very bad practices that can be harmful and can therefore contribute to the crisis.
2: That's really helpful Karen. I um, i have just been looking at your table of contents page and I have to say my imagination is completely captured by your subtitles for each chapter are amazing um, and I particularly because I work on eschatology a lot love um, your rapture title of or how a thief came in the night but left my chick tracks behind um, but I, I I'm just really interested in this idea of how certain expressions of evangelicalism will have certain shared images or metaphors that shape them i live in london now but i'm from the u.s and i was teaching on thessalonians recently to students and talking about rapture and left behind and just had totally blank faces Mm -hmm. because for evangelicals in the uk that's not sort of a it it is here a little bit but it's it's definitely not a shared shaping Mm. uh metaphor image i wonder to what extent for some of these do you see the metaphors you explore as widespread or more kind of subgroups or um certain pockets
4: of evangelical no that's that's really an important question and um A couple of points that I make in um, the beginning of the book is that, first of all, is that there is no such thing as one evangelical social imaginary. Um, I mean, even Taylor and and others who talk about social imaginaries um, almost always use the plural. So I kind of make that caveat in the beginning that there is no one. Sometimes when I use the singular, uh, it's just because it's like easier and, and less clunky. Um, the acknowledgement is that there is no, no one. Um, and then also, I really am, you know, I'm an American, I'm writing in an American context with an American publisher. So that really is the context. Um, and even though evangelicalism began in um, England, came over in the 18th century, and there's, you know, there's the, the, um, the evangelical revival in England, the great awakenings in America that are sort of parallel, and there was cross-fertilization, um, I'm still, you know, I'm really writing about that crisis that just really in 21st century American evangelicalism. So if some of the things will not resonate necessarily with others and across the globe. And evangelicalism, and that's, that's another sort of comfort or solace or reality that evangelicals in America need to face is that You know, evangelical is not just a polling category or survey category um, that comes up around the times of the elections, even though that might be the only time you hear it. It is a worldwide phenomenon. Um, And so that's an awareness we have to have as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think even with things that aren't necessarily shared images, the way that in American evangelicalism, some of that plays out actually does. it it kind of comes back across the pond and I think British evangelicals sometimes just aren't even aware of how some of their theology then gets shaped by things that have been shaped by American concepts so I think I think it's really important um even though you're writing in the American context I'm sure it's going to have resonance beyond that
4: yeah and that kind of resonance is exactly how an imaginary works so the, the specific examples or images or concepts may be different, but, um, but there's just so much cross-fertilization, so much influence, ripple effect, resonance, um, that just to examine one, one ingredient of an imaginary is to help us to all understand our own better.
1: I appreciate that you are connecting us to some of the historic roots of evangelicalism. And of course you're you know pushing us to this more global phenomenon. Um, or more global view of evangelicalism. But at the same time, um, even though you're expanding our ideas, you were also mentioning toward the beginning of this that there has been a shift in the last few years. So what are the sort of historic images and how have those become deformed or malformed more recently? Or or have there been images that have fallen out of view or something like that?
4: Well, I'm thinking about the current crisis that I think many of us understand evangelicalism to be in, especially American evangelicalism and everything that it touches. Um, I think I think the image idea as well as the historical fact uh, of the Reformation is important. So one of my last chapters is on Reformation, and of course I talk about you know the Protestant Reformation um, that created who we are today and has so much power but in looking at that and looking at the things that brought that reformation about um I really do think that we are faced or going through another reformation um and it's obviously not the same um and you know and and maybe it's 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 um you know, it may be overstating the case, although I really don't think so. I think we may be in kind of a 500 year moment and there are many parallels um, between what was going on then and what is going on now, despite the differences. I mean, we have rampant abuse and corruption in institutions. Uh, we also have a kind of illiter- a functional illiteracy. Many of the problems that we are seeing uh, you know, the, the conspiracy theories and the fake news and just just the, you know, the competing narratives about everything are essentially a kind of illiteracy, um, an unwillingness or inability to, to read original sources, for example, or even having being overwhelmed by so many different stories and sources and narratives that it, we can't even know which ones are, are true. We can find um, we, you know, you can find a story to explain anything um, and take any point of view and find their, the opposite as well. And so um, what I say in the book is that kind of sifting through all of those things is that if the original Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, was over correct doctrine... Um, because of you know, because of the ability of, of more people to have the Bible in their hands and to read what it actually says for themselves, which we still we you know we still have that ability. Um, we still have we now still have Bibles and we can read them and read them if we want to. Um, but maybe what we're not doing well is apply, applying that teaching. So it may be a reformation of orthopraxy. Um, as opposed to orthodoxy. And we always, we've we always needed both, uh, but it's a matter of emphasis. And I think the fracturing that we're facing and the apocalypse that we're facing and the crisis we're facing is because we who have the Bible can read the Bible and many who teach and preach the Bible. Um, collectively, we are not um, applying it well um, in our individual or know, or communal lives. And that's what is being revealed, I think, um, by this current digital age, which certainly has parallels in the rise of of print culture.
2: And that's
0: exactly why I think that um, it's it's a really smart idea for you to focus on imaginary, because it's not so much this question of right doctrine, as it was 500 years ago. But what you're saying is the problem that we're seeing has to do with our imaginary we're not applying the doctrine not because we don't understand it but because our imaginations have been shaped by something completely different or maybe a a a deformed version of of these doctrines um i'm wondering what you think i'm trying to think of what historically and culturally is different between you know then and now and you mentioned how there's a lot of uh comparable situations to 500 years ago, uh, or just during the Reformation more generally, like the literacy. I also can't help but think about how we have our own indulgences. And I've thought about this for a while um, of we have our own, you know, stores full of paraphernalia, you know, you need to buy the latest book or the latest translation of the Bible or the latest conference ticket or the latest whatever. And these are things that kind of show your status that help you grow, quote unquote, um, in, in your identity as an evangelical, um, but it's a very consumeristic version of, Mm -hmm. of indulgences. And so I'm wondering what you think maybe consumerism, and this might be what's different in the U S unique to the U S, but what effect has consumerism had on our social imaginary in the evangelical world?
4: Mm -hmm. No, I think, I think that is consumerism has had a huge, um, influence on it. And I, you know, again, this is, um, this is more sociology and economics and much more than I can, um, can expertly handle. But um, I, do, I do spend some time talking even about the beginnings of that kind of consumerist attitude, especially in the 19th century, sort of with the rise of, of trinkets and home decor and the Victorian home um and so there really is a long history but now what we have because of technology and because of digital media is we have that you know times 10 or 100 um and so I think there are many elements of not just evangelical culture but um you know all of modern culture um in in a late capitalist um society and that's part of the fracturing too and and for Christians that's something we have to you know we have to examine the way that we are imagining what it means to um, to live out our faith and to embody our faith, and it's much more um, than buying a T-shirt or the latest bestseller book. And I mean, there not any, there's anything wrong with those things, but we have to understand what they are and understand their limitations. Um, and I do think that's actually one of you know one of the things that gives me hope is that I do think that. Um, you know, to general, generalize younger generations are leading the way in that area. Um, I think the pandemic, you know, that has um, caused a lot of re-examination of values and lifestyles and including consumerism. So uh, it may be that we are seeing some things through to the other side in that area. Um, but one, you know, one thing to that's, to draw this example out a little bit more and draw more a great, more a closer parallel to 500 years ago, um, you know, we don't have, as evangelicals, we don't have a pope, and we don't have all of the priests that we, uh, and the partners and the summoners, and all the, the lay people that go along with it, um, that are formally part of our tradition, but we do have grifters. We do have grifters who are selling their messages that get paid for with clicks. And uh, I think I, somewhere in the book, I compare those um, grifters and those kinds of tweets and um, social media clicks to the magical sheep bones that we read about in Chaucer's famous *Pardoner's um, tale. I mean, so we have, we have corruption um, at the kind of lay level. Well, I, and obviously higher than that, but but that's another parallel. But it it but it's it's tied together with consumerism because we do consume those messages, those feeds, those articles. We click on them. That's why they call them clickbait, and we take the bait, um, myself included. So that's another kind of consumerism that I think is contributing to the current crisis.
3: Could you also talk about how um, power has uh, contributed to the current crisis and how it has uh, formed so much of our uh, current uh, social imaginary, especially in uh, the United States? So, when I think about you know evangelicalism in um, the 20th century, you know in the 70s and early 80s there was a high escapist mentality. Like we were just talking about eschatology a little bit ago with Left Behind. It's like we all thought we were getting out of here, right? And then it's it's almost like with the the delay of the parousia, so to speak, right? We've had to sort of like make heaven on earth, right? With the kind of rise of the religious right and, and current um, developments uh, related to power. I'm just wondering, you know, how you see uh, power playing a role here, because to me, it seems so contrary to that kind of broader evangelical eschatology of escape. And, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better and all this stuff. So, I, it it seems like it's a sort of um, a counterintuitive approach in some ways, given the eschatology. So I'm just curious uh, to hear your reflections on that.
4: No, mm. yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, of course, power is has always been around is an abuse of power as long as human beings have been around. So that's that's always with us. But I think what the, in this moment that we're in now in this era of late modernity, um, I think what's tricky and and is part of the imaginary that I'm talking about is that that power doesn't wear a Pope hat for us. Power doesn't wear vestments and robes necessarily. Power often looks like the cool hipster, young pastor who acts like your best buddy. Um, and that's And because that seems so anti-power, it actually has... It, it, it has as much if not more power because, because we might not necessarily recognize it. And so there's, there's power in informality, power in friendship, power in uh, relationship, power in, uh, in, in wearing ordinary clothes instead of clerical robes. Um, there are these sort of disguised forms of power that we don't necessarily recognize as having power over us. Uh, And so it's much more subtle and much more seductive in that way. And that is, and it forms our imaginations. And so that's why we have to look at it or it could just be, you know, I mean, I think this is part of the temptation that we have to, um, to place our, 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 our faith too much in political outcomes and political figures, um, it's a way of exerting power. And, and, you know, we are, you know, it's, it's I'm not saying this is easy. I mean, we are to be good stewards and we do believe as Christians that God's truth is good uh, for the flourishing of all human beings. And so we want to see human beings flourish. And yet, if we put too much trust in human power, then we are undermining the very thing that we say that we believe in. Um, and I think your, your insight, you know, that I want to think about more that, that, you know, we seem to be settling or putting, investing more in earthly and human forms of power because, you know, the second coming that, you know, we were told would happen like in the 70s or then the 80s or whatever um, didn't happen. And so I think, you you know, the real answer is to just not assume it's we know is going, when it's going to happen, when it will we'll be there, when it happens and just, just live our lives and build our structures and institutions uh, as though they will always be here uh, because we don't know how long the Lord will tarry.
1: One of the things that I find really interesting about the analogy with the reformation is the idea that um, we have to identify who's being reformed Um, You know, or who who's being changed in that, and I. It also so that's one piece. But it it also strikes me that um, our reformers, especially those who are well known, uh, had different approaches in their relationship to the power structures that were in place. And so um, I think this is you know maybe more of a comment. But I'd be super curious, Karen, if you had an idea if there's a particular approach that would be a particularly fruitful way forward for evangelicals and as a sort of like, you know, extension of that question, um, will those who reform still be called
4: evangelicals at the end of the day? Well, you get a lot packed in there. So yeah, no, great questions. Um, So first, what, what is the right approach or way? And, um, you know, I, 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 I'm actually a person who believes in institutions. Um, I have invested in institutions, and institutions have invested in me. So um, I'm I'm a person who believes that institutions um, can do much good um, on earth and for God's glory. Yet at the same time, as we're as we're facing some of the cracking and corruption of of, of institutions. Um, I think there isn't necessarily one way, I mean, well, there is one way, <laughs> it is the way of Jesus. And I do think that even within community, even within a church community or a parachurch institution in, the, in these structures that I still believe in, we are all accountable and called to um, follow the way of Jesus. And so it is going to look different um, for different people in different places. So there are people who are going to be called to be part of, you know, reforming institutions, um, whether political or, or um, ecclesiastical or parachurch. Uh, and there are going to be people who are called to out of institutions as I, you know, I, I'm in, in that season now. Um, and, but yet what's the same is that we're all called to just conform to the way of Jesus and whatever, place or role he puts us in. And those places and roles change. And I think that's what's hard for a lot of us to uh well I, I'm projecting. It's hard for me because I'm a person who doesn't like change. And I just, you know, I just want to, you know, find the way and and stick to that and um and, and not have to change anything. Um, but even those of us, you know, like me, who just don't want anything to change, uh, the world is shifting and cracking and the foundations are cracking around us. So we really have no choice. We have to kind of adapt um, to the cracks that we're seeing, the cracks that we're exposed to. Um, And so I guess my, as a kind of a long-winded way, I guess my, my tentative answer to your very good question is it's still, you know, it really comes down to to individual believers obeying the call of Christ in the way of Christ, wherever we are, and I know that seems simple, but um, but it, it's not simple when we have other competing goods um, that are, you know, that we're we're choosing among, because um, that's essentially what ethics boils down to: is choosing between competing goods and trying to figure out what's not just good, but what's better. Um, And so I think that's kind of the moment that we're in now. And then you had a second question that was so good. What was the second part of
1: this? I was curious if you had a a sense whether um, the faithful, uh, you know, the reformers, if they will be those who are identified Mm -hmm. as evangelical, or if there will be a schism that yields some sort of new terminology for the, the I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to label them,
4: but those who are reforming, I suppose. Yeah. No, I love that question. And I'm, I'm so solidly on the record since at least 2017 in a book called Still Evangelical saying, I'm still claiming the label. I'm still evangelical. I started out this podcast doing that. And with that said, I I want to say um, that there may be a, you know, there may be a fracturing, a reforming that takes place that um, other people, historians, perhaps after my, my life on this earth has ended, um, give a sign a different name to. Um, I haven't seen one yet. I'm entirely, I, I don't, I feel like that's the, the history that we're living right now, and that the history books will tell, um, and whether, you know, it will take too long that, that I won't be able to see it or know what it is. Um, I, we have, it still remains to be seen. But I think that very well could happen. I think that there could be some sort of reformation. Uh, and however that works itself out, there could be different um, names applied to those who go different ways. Um, I just hope that I'm um, whatever way I go and whatever name is assigned to me, it's the one that shows the way of Jesus the most amen thanks karen
0: when when i think about the evangelical scene in north america right now and what are some of the characteristics or what what adjectives come to mind i guess one of the things that i think frequently is the word angst Mm -hmm. a a kind of general anxiety um, and angst and it's everything from an angst about being saved you know am i really saved or did my conversion stick or do i need to go back to the altar or is this person really saved how do i know if they're really saved um and or maybe what false ideas are lurking in the background of this film or this um Mm -hmm. this book and can we identify them and pull them out kind of this like hermeneutics of suspicion like on steroids and usually not done very well but where, where do you think that that is coming from? Mm. And with that, what is the, what is the good desire behind that? Maybe historically rooted, uh, what is the untwisted version Mm. of of that distortion, do you think?
4: Mm. That's such a good question. And um, yeah, I, I definitely like angst is a, is a good word to describe it. But even at a lower dose, the word I sometimes use is like nervousness, like why is everyone so nervous? Right, um, we we can go before the throne boldly. Like if we if we really believe what we say, we believe. Like we should be confident. Um, I wrote an article a few years ago talking about hospitable orthodoxy. Like if we if we believe our faith is orthodox, like we should be the most hospitable, confident people to um, to host questions, doubts, skepticism, all of those things. That um, and so you know, why are we so nervous or filled with angst? Um, Well, I I think, again, to go back to consumerism, I think there are a lot of um, people and places and businesses that have, can make a lot of money um, stirring up those anxieties and those questions. Um, I mean, we know there's an entire sort of fashion industry that preys on women's images to make them feel less than, and we know that that and men too. But we know that that works. Um, that that creates, um, you know, money for those who do that. And so I don't think Christians or evangelicals are exempt from those kinds of of efforts, um, whether they are intended that way or not. There's there's a lot of money to be made from angst and nervousness. Um, but the good side of that, I mean, again, we can go back to the Puritans, um, the Puritans who. Um, were known to be self-reflective and kept journals of, you know, of their inner lives and their uh, to just sort of measure um, the evidence of their sanctification. Uh, now, that obviously can go too far, but, you know, um, as someone who's just recently and for the first time in my life entered therapy, um, you know, self-reflectiveness is good and healthy. I mean, I think my habit, my own personal lifelong habit of, of, of circumspection and self-reflection has aided me more than I realized until, you know, uh, until I reached this, my own moment of sort of personal crisis um, that I actually have a habit of self-reflectiveness. That's, that's, it's not just a spiritual thing, but it's an emotional and intellectual thing that I think um, helps us to be healthier in in every respect. So so it's there's a tension there but I think for the Christian um that tension should always shift on the side of of confidence and um and I don't mean self-confidence like pride and haughtiness I mean confidence in the Lord um that you know and even you talked about like having angst about other people's salvation. Well, you know, we need to leave more work Um, to the Lord and more work to the Holy Spirit that we, we support by praying and by, um, by um, befriending and teaching and modeling and and living our own lives. I think that's the best support that we can be to someone upon whom the Holy Spirit might be working. Um, But we cannot take the place of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of what I think that the angst that we have um, comes from, from from that, from that desire. And again, maybe I'm just projecting because I like to be in control and take charge. Um, so it's as much a struggle for me as it is for anyone. But I think that's, um, you know, that that's a lesson I I learned. And if I have time, I'll, just a quick analogy, um, early in my life, in my 20s, I was um, the principal of a, of a Christian high school. Um, and um, it was in that place and in that role that I learned when I would work with parents and work with students, and I would see parents um, make what doing what making what I thought would be mistakes, and you know, in raising or disciplining or teaching their children, and I would do what I could, but but I had to learn early on that um, God and His providence did not make me the parents of those children. He made their parents, their parents, and they have accountability and authority that I didn't have and I couldn't take. And he gave me a different role and that's what I was accountable for. And I think just that early experience helped me to understand and and realize roles and accountability um, and that I can't be to a person or to the Lord. Uh, You know, I can't replace what God has called others to do uh, or what he is called to do um in this earth and in people's lives and so just understanding our roles and what we're accountable for i think has been um helpful for me personally i can't be the holy spirit either
3: <laughs>
4: that's a tough one
0: karen i'm wondering how how you think we might be able to renew or reimagine the evangelical imaginary. Um, after identifying what it is and kind of diagnosing what these images and metaphors are that are shaping our imaginations, where do we where do we go from here?
4: Mm, that's a great question. Um, and you know, I'll probably end up with the Sunday school answer, but in ending up there, maybe I'll just use a metaphor. Um, a good part of the um, impetus for, uh, the way this book take took shape i was working on it but it was you know it was still pretty rough in form a, a couple of years ago still during the pandemic um my husband and i did a remodel in the bathroom well i say my husband and i like he did it you know i, I pick out the things but he does the work and um and you know it was a, it's a small bathroom it was supposed to be a simple job and um you know we took up he He took off all the things that had to be taken off and discovered, lo and behold, like a a leak, you know, a a pipe problem that he wasn't expecting. No big deal. I mean, this this kind of thing happens all the time. But it was just it turned out to be not. It turned out to be a more extensive um, repair than we were expecting. And so it's a simple metaphor, but you know, the way that it answers your question is that you know, and this is what I'm trying to do in this book, and I, I use this metaphor in the beginning is to say. There are so many things we don't think about because they're covered up in pretty paper, wallpaper and tiles and flooring. And it's when we kind of decide um, that we wanna change the look of something often that we do the digging and we find out that these things that we haven't been thinking about that are the structures and the support and the bones of something and the water supply, the most important things that we just haven't had to think about need repair. And um, I think that's what we're facing right now in evangelicalism. You know, we've we've had a sort of glossy, nice veneer for a while for some of us, not everyone. Um, certainly, there have been people who've not had that. But for me, as someone who did has had a good experience, um, and kind of stripping away the surface, I'm seeing um, what's underneath. And I think a lot of us are. And so, in a real home remodel. When we're picking out um, the new look, we go to you know the the lumberyard. We look on Instagram. We look on Pinterest. Do, do people go to Pinterest anymore? You know, we look for the examples. We 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 get our eyes. We say, oh, I love that look, or I love this look, or I want this. That's what I do. Um, and so when it comes to our faith, we have to go. We have to look at the only example that is reliable and true, we have to say, oh, I want my faith to look like that. I want my church to look like that. I want my school or classroom to look like that. And the that is Jesus. Um, and we just have to keep looking at him and see what he looks like in his entirety, not just in this verse or that verse. Um, but we have to, we have to want... Not just the, you know, we have the foundation has to look like Jesus, but also the veneer and the decor and the surface has to look like him too. And so much of both um, don't right now. And so um, we just go back to looking at him and trying to replicate that in our in our homes and in our lives and our organizations um, and in our souls.
0: It has been such a delight to have you on this episode with us today. Thank you for coming and sharing um, about your new book, um, which is just such a a, a masterpiece of of a text, I think is so relevant for this time. So we appreciate your hard work on that and for taking the time to come and chat with us about it.
4: Thanks for having me. It's always a delight.